Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfield's Managing Risk in Asia podcast series. In this series, we bring together experts across a range of subject areas to share forward-looking insights on key risk areas for businesses in Asia. My name is Annette Dodu, and I'm a partner in our Asia antitrust practice, and I lead our antitrust practice in China. This episode is the second in our two-part series focusing on life sciences. In our last episode, we discussed investment strategies and M&A trends in the life sciences area, including risks and opportunities associated with different transaction types. Today, we will discuss other deal structures, looking particularly at licensing and collaboration arrangements. And I'm delighted to be joined by four colleagues from Freshfield's Global Life Sciences Practice. First, Kristen Riemenschneider. Kristen is a life sciences transactions partner. She represents life sciences companies on their most significant transactions, from strategic license and collaboration arrangements to complex supply chain arrangements. Hi, I'm Kristen Riemenschneider. I'm a partner in the Washington, D.C. office. Also from D.C. is Mary Lehner, a senior antitrust partner specialized on the antitrust aspects of M&A, joint ventures, distribution and intellectual property arrangements and other competitive conduct before the US authorities. Mary was an advisor to two FTC chairs before joining the firm. Happy to be with you all. We also have Richard Burt and Richard is head of the Freshfields IP commercial practice group in Asia. Based in Hong Kong, he advises clients in standalone commercial and transaction matters and contentious intellectual property matters. Hello, great to be here. Last but not least is Xin Liu. He is a partner in the Asia Dispute Resolution Group based in Hong Kong and Beijing. He specializes in international arbitration, cross-border litigation, investigation and compliance matters with a focus on Chinese-related matters. Hello, everyone. Well, let me kick off our discussion and ask what you think are the common risk traps in collaboration arrangements into Asia and indeed for Asian clients investing overseas. Perhaps let me turn to you first, Kristen. Yep. So obviously I'm based in Washington. Most of my experience is in collaborations involving U.S. companies who want to work with an Asian-based entity. I specialize in licensing collaborations, unlike M&A deals, which are typically commercial contracts that can run 15 to 20 years in this space. It's almost like a partnership, but it's all contract-based. So. There are obviously joint ventures, which can be new entities that are formed, but I think most commonly in the life sciences, we see these collaboration deals. And they're very common in the sector. They provide a nice risk benefit sort of for both of the parties and attempt to manage risk throughout the development process of a new drug. But I'm finding for US clients who want to work with entities in Asia and particularly in China, that there are a whole host of potential risks that they don't know about, quite frankly. As US lawyers, we really have not been trained on what's happening in China, what are the unique regulatory and structural differences between Chinese markets and the Chinese legal framework that are different from here. 
Richard and I have been working on a transaction in which I learned foreign investment is prohibited in the development or application of technology that is directed towards human stem cell research or gene diagnostics and therapeutics. Well, I mean, so that probably is the first surprise. So foreign collaborations in the pharma biotech space are regulated. And there's a specific regulation that deals with exactly that topic. It deals with more than just that. It deals with the use of human genetic resources, the collection, the use, any collaboration dealing with human genetic resources, also the access to data, the results of research on human genetic resources. So quite a different approach to what you would find in many other countries. Human genetic resources, that covers obviously patient laboratory samples, so blood samples, saliva, urine, human tissue samples, cell cultures, basically anything that contains human genes. It also includes, as I mentioned, the data generated from the analysis of that type of material, procedures applied to that material. So that is human genetic resources and human genetic resource data. Data that does not itself include genetic information is unlikely to be caught. There are implementing rules that are issued which clearly exclude certain types of general laboratory test data, so blood and urine routines, liver and renal function data, blood tests, clinical imaging data, metabolic data. It explicitly includes data that contains genomic information or human genetic information. That is definitely included. There's possibly quite a significant gray area somewhere in the middle. And then, as you mentioned, the key requirement of that regulation is essentially a prohibition on any foreign organization or a foreign controlled organization. Foreign companies are not permitted to either collect or process any human genetic resources or human genetic resource data in China or to transfer either, again, the material itself or the data out of China. And so the first implication of that is that any collaboration, any scientific research using genetic resources can only be carried out in collaboration with a Chinese party. So that's a Chinese pharmaceutical, biotech company, Chinese CRO, Chinese university, or Chinese medical institution, and only with the approval of the Ministry of Science and Technology based on a joint application by both parties. There's an ethics review that needs to be completed as well. And there's a requirement for the Chinese party to be fully involved in all aspects of the research, to have complete access to all the results of the research, and basically that's designed to avoid sort of license sharing practices. A report will need to be filed at the end of the research program to demonstrate the involvement of the Chinese party as a sort of anti-avoidance measure, again to avoid license sharing practices. So a very, very different approach. Yeah. Would you recommend that most companies get that Ministry of Science and Technology approval prior to executing the collaboration agreement, or is that something that you can get? Well, the collaboration agreement itself is part of the application package. Ah, okay. Um, so it could not be applied for in advance. There were some published statistics about two years ago that suggested that most applications were being approved at the time, and mostly within about seven working days. Oh, wow. Okay. So then we have our Ministry of Science and Technology application that we should do quite quickly after execution of the deal document. Very often in these agreements, we also have antitrust regulatory filings that are required. Most of the collaboration agreements in which I'm involved, there's an exclusive license. And at least in the United States, if you hit the appropriate cost and size of the entity threshold, we would expect to have an HSR filing. 
But I know that in licensing collaborations, because we have these option structures sometimes, or you get a non-exclusive at the beginning and an exclusive down the road, that the regulatory considerations can be quite complicated. Yes, Mary? That's exactly right, Kristen. Well said. And I'll just note that across the world, where you have a joint venture being created, you often have to think about notifications for competition. And certainly in some jurisdictions, such as the US, as you just pointed out, an exclusive license will trigger a mandatory filing if it is a deal of a certain size, et cetera. And as you just mentioned, on the exercise of an option or on the handback of a product, there may also need to be a filing made. So we just need to closely monitor and stay in regular contact with the business to avoid a gun jumping risk or consummating before getting antitrust clearance in a necessary jurisdiction. In the U.S., I, I'm generally familiar with when we need to do an HSR filing. If we're doing um, a licensing collaboration deal between a U.S. entity and a Chinese entity, for example, how would I know or what should I be looking for to assess whether there might also need to be a filing in China or anywhere else? That's a very good question, Kristen. And to some extent, as we discussed on our last podcast, you have to work out whether or not relevant thresholds are met. But also, critically, you also need to understand whether the relevant collaboration requires notification to a regulator, because not every jurisdiction around the world will necessarily recognize the fact that an exclusive licensing arrangement should trigger a filing. If you take China, for example, you would also need to look at the structure of the licensing arrangement. Are there employees? Are there IP rights? Are you going to set up a structure, in other words, a legal entity, for example, to house the licensing and collaboration arrangement? Because that will help you to determine whether or not it triggers a filing in the China context. So it's really the two things, looking at the deal structure that informs our assessment, but also looking at the thresholds to assess whether the thresholds are met very much, as Mary was saying. So in other words, there are similarities with the US, but it's these two points that are the real drivers when you're looking at whether a transaction does or does not require regulatory approval in a given jurisdiction. And I think you mentioned the IP issues, Nanette. Obviously, many of these collaborations are structured such that both parties are contributing IP into the collaboration in some way. And then there are typically provisions that deal with new IP that's generated in the performance of the collaboration work. And in the US, we find that who owns that IP is just a straight matter of contract discussions and negotiations. Each party just sort of negotiates for what they want. But Richard, as I understand it, there are some specific regulations in China that may impact how you can assign ownership. Yeah, so again, that same regulation, the Human Genetic Resource Regulation. And we shouldn't really be surprised by this because China has always sought to keep control over key strategic technologies through a combination of the foreign investment regime, also direct restrictions on the export of sensitive technologies. And that sort of basic philosophy is carried into this regulation. So the first requirement is an obligation for all patents that arise from international collaboration approved by the Ministry of Science and Technology have to be jointly applied for have to be jointly owned according to the regulation. The regulation is ambiguous whether or not that can be contracted out of. Generally speaking, I mean this rule is not unique, generally speaking you can contract out of those statutory allocations of ownership. You can override that by agreement of the parties but 
It is not really clear whether that's also the case in the HGRAC regulation. But as I say, following usual practice, there's some reason to think that that might be possible. That rule does not affect ownership of data or ownership of other IP. It specifically targets patents. As I mentioned before, the regulation also requires a Chinese party to be given full access to all the research records, all the data, everything, all the results generated from the collaboration. So again, regulation in China where you wouldn't expect to find regulation in many other countries. Yeah, so with this mandatory sharing with the collaboration partner, that puts probably unique pressure on the confidentiality provisions that you're negotiating. And we typically have carve-outs for sharing for investment purposes and things, but that creates a whole new slant on things. Yeah. So even in circumstances where you may you know, concede joint ownership over patents, you might be able to agree a different allocation of ownership for foreign patents, for example, with the overseas party having either full ownership or an exclusive license. You may agree to get you know, an exclusive license over the patents or an option to acquire full or so sole ownership later for an agreed price. All of those workarounds may be effective, they may not be effective. We're not really clear at the moment. It's a fairly new regulation and there isn't a great deal of established practice. You do have to file the collaboration agreement as part of the application. So the Ministry of Science and Technology, of course, may have a view on that. And because of the uncertainties around whether or not these workarounds will in fact be effective, it's always worth building in sort of fallback positions in case your first line is not effective. Many US companies find their negotiated agreements to be very sensitive. And we build in all sorts of provisions that say you won't disclose the agreement. You may disclose certain portions of it. And if it has to be put in a US securities filing, it's very heavily redacted. So I think it might be a shock to some US companies to learn that their agreement would have to be provided in full. So it's very interesting. Well, there's a fair expectation of confidentiality. I wouldn't say that's the principal concern. I mean, the main focus, of course, is getting the approval. You know, it's not a static process. There are opportunities for dialogue with the authority. If you choose a good partner who has a good relationship with the ministry, of course, that can help with establishing that dialogue, getting the necessary approval. Thanks very much, Kristen and Richard, about that discussion you've just had there, focusing on, in a sense, a regulatory dimension, particularly data issues, ownership issues, IP issues, and Mary, your helpful point about needing to make sure that relevant filings are made as and when. What we are seeing in Asia now is that a number of our clients are asking us, particularly in the current environment, about FCPA issues, sanctions issues, anti-bribery and corruption issues. Not that it's specific to Asia, but it's just in a climate where there are geopolitical tensions around. This is an area that a number of our clients are talking to us about. And Shin, you and I have had these sorts of discussions. What do you think that investors from outside Asia in particular should be looking out for when it comes to these topics? Yes, Nina, uh, anti-bribery and FCP issues remain to be an important issue for pharmaceutical deals. I think mainly because most of Asian jurisdictions are still high-risk jurisdictions for bribery concerns. And pharmaceutical industry, of course, is also industry that is more prone to bribery risks given government interactions. But I think maybe I flag another risk that is more recent, that is the sanctions and export control risk. Both the US and China, probably also some other governments, have been more and more assertive in evaluating national security considerations in respect of the cross-border partnership collaboration agreements we have been talking about. 
certain therapeutic assets and also breakthrough innovative technologies can be considered to be sensitive technologies by governments. As such, it's important to carefully consider whether assets that are contemplated to be contributed or licensed to the joint venture will require an export control license or any additional forms of governmental approval. That's a very interesting point you make, Shin. I would like to ask you a follow-up question. Now, you talked about governments being very focused on enforcement, as it were. To what extent are you seeing these enforcement impact business decisions? I'm thinking particularly about, as a disputes lawyer, enforcing contractual obligations, frankly, when things go wrong, or for companies protecting themselves to ensure that things don't go wrong. Sure. Maybe again, I divide it into two parts. One is the traditional risk like anti-bribery and then sanction export control risk. The amount of FCPA anti-bribery enforcement in the life science sector in the last few years have already been very significant. And there are signs that indicate increase of enforcement as senior US DOJ officials have said that they have a very robust pipeline in 2023. The criminal and regulatory regulators have focused on quite a few areas, for example, marketing, promotion of medications, the interactions with regulatory agencies and healthcare professionals, etc. Those are more traditional. I think this area hasn't generated a lot of commercial disputes, for example, in arbitrations litigations, because there's already quite ready mechanism trying to deal with the risk. But the other new area is really sanction export control, as I mentioned. Maybe I just focus on US-China trade war a little bit. The US is taking steps to reduce its reliance on China for pharmaceuticals. The Biden administration is concerned that US investors in the China technology sector maybe advancing the Chinese development of advanced technologies to the detriment of U.S. national security. Therefore, it is considering establishing an outbound investment screening regime. The regime would involve a U.S. government interagency committee that would review U.S. investment in foreign companies, potentially including Chinese biotech companies, that would possess the authority to prevent such investment from being consumer-mated. The BIS also imposed some restrictions on a few important Chinese players in the biotech industry. On the other hand, China has also rolled out some export control rules or other countermeasures that make the deals in this space more complicated than before. So we have seen more and more due diligence in sanctions export control risks, enhancing provisions on termination indemnity to address the risk, especially the fast evolving risk in this area between signing closing and post-closing. That has led to some potential disputes. We are actually advising some clients on this area. Thank you very much for that, Jin. We've really focused most of this discussion around risk, hearing from you first, Kristen, and then you also, Richard, highlighting some of the IP data-related issues. Of course, Kristen, you focused on the transactional side of things, licensing particularly, and then Mary also talking about the antitrust. I'd like to move the conversation on. Clearly, there are opportunities between Asia and U.S., we are seeing lots of our clients engaged in collaboration, licensing arrangements. So how would you best manage, how would you advise your clients about managing risks in terms of deal making? Why don't I begin with you, Kristen? So I think absolutely the best advice I can give anyone in this space is to find counsel 
in Asia who is very familiar with these rules and regulations. I'm working on a deal right now, a license and collaboration agreement with a Chinese counterparty. And having Richard's advice in particular has been instrumental in us structuring the agreement and the IP provisions in a way that makes sense. In connection with that, we've done extensive due diligence with the counterparty on how it's structured, understanding where the money is going to flow from the US into China, and really understanding which corporate entity controls decision-making. That helps us then think through how we structure the collaboration itself on an ongoing daily basis. Given the approvals that are necessary under the HGRAC regime and with the Ministry of Science and Technology, I think it's important in agreements to figure out a mechanism for dealing with those approvals. As U.S. lawyers, you know, we're quite familiar with how to deal with HSR approvals and structuring the agreement to contemplate that. But one thing now that I'm thinking about, we often pay very substantial sums of money upfront. You know, you could see a $50 million upfront payment. Now I need to keep in the back of my mind, what do I do if that approval doesn't come through from MOST? How do we get that money back? What kinds of mechanisms should we be building in? Another point that I think we should think about is what exactly is the territory? So if we talk about China, does that include Hong Kong? Does that include Taiwan? We need to be precise in our contract drafting so that we know exactly which regulations we're picking up. And then just a general sort of understanding that these IP regulations will have an impact on the structure of the deal and to have the in-house IP lawyers familiar with these regimes so that they can make sensible decisions. You mentioned the sort of structuring challenges in these collaboration agreements, and they are multiple. So there's a sort of threshold question whether or not to try and displace co-ownership of patents or to sort of live with that. And then, you know, if you do choose to live with it, what sort of governance needs to be built in around prosecution, you know, rights of the co-owners to exploit the patents, license them, assign them, et cetera, et cetera. There's various other statutory preemption rights under a combination of the HGRAC regulation and other pre-existing regulations. So, for example, obligations to share in the revenue from exploitation of patents in proportion to the respective contributions, approval rights over transfers to third parties. All of that will need to be waived. There are other statutory preemption rights. So if a co-owner gives up the right to apply for a patent, they receive a statutory license and that may or may not align with the party's commercial intent. That would be a free license as well. So again, another complication that will need to be, you know, structured around. There's also a mandatory warranty, fitness of purpose of licensed IP, that if you don't sort of include in the contract and then qualify and draft around to sort of better reflect the party's intentions, will just be implied in the contract sort of as written with potential unintended consequences. Also, it's very important to understand if the partner has accessed government funds in the development of their technology, their contributed technology. If government funds have been accessed, it'd be very important to understand what the funding conditions are. Because those funding conditions very often include restrictions on the commercialization and use of that, of the resulting technology, sharing that technology with a foreign party, and there may be further approvals required from either the Ministry of Science and Technology or the Chinese Academy of Sciences or a local or provincial government. So again, lots and lots of structuring complexity.
And from the anti-bribery and sanctions perspective, the first point I want to make is that U.S. law is almost always relevant given the extraterritorial application of FCPA and its sanctions as per control law, even if the parties to the deals do not involve U.S. party. Because of that, I think when we advise our client, that's an area we always need to look into. The second point I want to mention is that anti-bribery and sanctions export control issues are becoming increasingly an integral part to the due diligence. And you also need to consider the transaction provisions associated with those issues to address the risks. Post-closing, compliance enhancement is a very important area. You know, the deal is not done after you sign a contract. That's probably the starting point of how you change the awareness of the compliance issues of the management, change the awareness and cooperation of your Asian partners. The compliance expectation and approach may be quite different, so it requires international companies uh, to pay a lot of attention to that. The last point I want to mention is really the point I mentioned on the U.S.-China trade war and geopolitical tensions. I see the increasing risk of companies being caught in the middle of conflicting regimes. And the conflicting laws are expanding from sanctions to export control and some other areas. So it's important for the council team appreciate those changing landscapes and give proper advice to manage the risk, especially for deals that does not last for one month, but 10 years or longer. Mayor, I'd like to come to you last on the antitrust side, particularly looking at how to manage VDR review, how we discuss document creation, synergies, planning and audits. Because I think sometimes when businesses are looking at deals, there is a risk around those sorts of areas. So how would you best advise managing those sorts of risks? And what have you advised your clients in the past? So for clean teams, just down to basics, the key is to separate those in the business making decisions about all aspects of a product from reviewing sensitive materials of a competitor. And so when we say sensitive materials of a competitor, we're thinking documents or data related to R&D, pricing, non-price aspects of competition. And the point here is to avoid the exchange of information that could facilitate illegal coordination between competitors. But it's also, and almost more commonly, that's less of an actual risk. And really the concern is that we wanna avoid the appearance of illegal coordination between competitors or the attempt of illegal coordination. So clean teams are really important when you're thinking about VDRs and making sure that we're walling off folks who should be walled off. With respect to document creation, and this of course is a bigger issue, but it's also an issue that comes into play in the VDR because you're reviewing documents that have been created throughout the business, but also with respect to the transaction, you just have to consider how a regulator will read the documents. So often business folks want to sell a deal and that's completely understandable, but we need to stick to the facts and it's helpful to really make sure that we're highlighting benefits to consumers. So for instance, how R&D will be enhanced and how breakthroughs will be accelerated by the transaction. And of course, any language that suggests that the transaction creates or maintains market power or the ability to raise prices or cease other R&D. Those sorts of documents with those sorts of language worry regulators quite a bit, 
then it can trigger an investigation or even a challenge in an otherwise unproblematic deal. So that's really something to watch for. Just make sure you have good document hygiene. You mentioned synergies. Again, this is sort of a document creation point and also just a thought about how regulators think about synergies. Again, R&D enhancements and accelerated breakthroughs are important to highlight. And we need to avoid suggestions, of course, that a transaction would allow our fewer resources to be dedicated to R&D or certain R&D programs would be shut down as a result of a transaction. And finally, I would just note that any reference to revenue synergies will raise regulator concerns about pricing issues. And so we should take a careful look at anything that we're calling a revenue synergy. Thank you very much for that. I'd also like to thank you, Shin, Christian, and Richard for the insights on managing licensing collaboration risks in the life sciences area in and outside Asia. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for listening into this episode in our Managing Risk in Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please do email us using the links. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.